again, everyone. Rise and shine. It's true crime comedy time. My name is Matt. The voice in my head often makes an appearance alongside the stories I tell on this show. His name is Alex. Good morning. Welcome back. Thank you, current and hopefully new listeners who've had a chance to listen to last week's episode or any of the other ones. I appreciate you. Such an interesting character from last week, Byron David Smith. If you haven't heard, go back and check that out. It's kind of like if Dale Gribble from King of the Hill finally snapped and murdered Connie and Joseph. If this is your first episode, first of all, hi, new listener. Second of all, let me explain the cheeriness in my voice. Yes, this is a true crime show, but first and foremost, this is a comedy show. The goal of each story I tell is to make you laugh. The stories I tell, though are about a very true, and sometimes brutal and or disgusting, true crime case, usually a murder. Wait a minute, why do we talk about murder and laugh about it? Because murder is uncomfortable, and I think the best way to process uncomfortable information or situations is to laugh about it. Don't overthink it. Trust me. It works. But before we begin today, let me do the thing that I need to do real quick. If you like this story or just how I tell stories on this podcast, go into whichever thing you're currently listening on and pick a free thing on there to do to show your support for the show. Rating and reviews will be transmitted directly to my brain upon submission. Regarding today's topic, I didn't realize when I picked this case how little information there is available on it. Still an interesting case, though, and I'll do my best to be as entertaining as and informative as, as I can, as is always the goal here. So we may end up being just a little bit shorter than usual today. I'd prefer not to force anything in just for the sake of filling a time slot. But much of the story today will be centered around the series of events leading up to the murders. And while there isn't a ton of information widely available directly relating to Aaron Lynn's childhood, we do know he was in the foster care system and in and out of group homes in juvie for much of it. We're going to start our little journey today in Delafield, Wisconsin. And we'll spend quite a bit of time there at a few group homes and take a look at what the foster care system was like back then and if it's gotten any better today. Spoiler alert, I started my Thursday off this week by watching a documentary on the problems facing the foster care system today, and that was not the most uplifting way to begin my morning. But this might bring us back up a little bit. I came across something that's been ongoing in Delafield for a very long time. And that is an annual event called the Coon Feed. Tickets are 18 bucks for adults, and kids six and younger get in free. No information available on ticket prices from the ages of 7 to 17. If you were curious as to why they call it the Coon Feed, it is exactly what the fuck it sounds like, and it's fuck, it's so gross. Oh my god. The article I found from this year says, quote, They plan to start by slow roasting 300 to 350 pounds of raccoon meat. What the fuck? Along with turkey stuffing, mashed potatoes, sauerkraut, coleslaw, bread, and dessert. If you've ever wondered, how the fuck would I cook a raccoon? Apparently slow roasting is the way to go. Wait a minute. How many raccoons is that? Hold on. Okay, so... Um... A raccoon weighs anywhere from 7 to 20 pounds, but they have to have a lot of them, so they probably don't have a lot of food to compete for if there's enough raccoons to round up, slaughter, and slow cook every year for the past 100 years. So most likely on the smaller side, so let's just say right around 7 pounds, 350 divided by 7 is... So $18 will get you access to, at minimum, 
50 delicious, slow roasted and perfectly seasoned, just fall off the bone tender, make you slap your knee, it's so goddamn tasty, raccoon, as well as a litany of other sides that actually would probably be good if not for being cooked alongside 50 raccoons. What the fuck, Wisconsin? That's the kind of shit they're supposed to do down here where I live. I didn't know you could even eat a fucking raccoon. The article goes on to say that people from all over the state and the U.S. come to the Coon Fest to try something unique and different. Who, who is traveling to eat a raccoon? How many of you want to go eat a raccoon? We call them trash pandas for a reason, guys. They hang out in garbage for fun and food. It does go to a good cause, though. Proceeds go to Veteran Affairs to help homeless veterans, which is awesome, and also the local Boy Scout troop, which is also cool. It says they usually raise around $6,500 in donations every year, which I did the math on because nerd, and that's only around 300 people. I'm willing to bet if you didn't make people eat fucking raccoon, you could pump those numbers a little bit. One person said it tastes a little bit like corned beef. Hold on, though. Has anyone out there ever corned a beef? There's a lot of shit that goes into making it taste like that. It shouldn't just taste like that naturally. Oh my god, corned coon. Or maybe some coon on the cob. Or better yet still, go get some more turkeys. There's a shitload of them in Wisconsin, unless Alexa just lied to me. Huh? What? What did I do? Not you. I said Alexa. Oh. Well then pass me that coon stick. So who are we talking about today? We're gonna talk about a guy named Aaron Lind. He was born in 1968, though I'm not certain what the actual day was, and his life started off pretty rough. After only 11 days, the teeny tiny Aaron was taken away from his mother by the state and placed into the foster care system. Maybe a concerned citizen saw them participating at the coon feed and made a judgment call. Whatever the case, he was adopted about four months later by the Lind family, Marianne and John. By all accounts, they seemed to have tried their best with Aaron, but he was a troubled child. His defense lawyers later on would say about his childhood, His life of crime began at age four. Shoplifting, setting fires, stealing, fighting, fantasizing about murder, and even an attempt at suicide. Marianne once found him in the closet after he'd tried to hang himself with a belt. And if that wasn't enough, he also told his adoptive parents that he would rob them, kill them, and burn their house down if he ever got the chance. A toddler arsonist, everyone. Holy shit, and he's Holy how shit, we already found the name of the episode. A toddler arsonist eats coon on the cob in Wisconsin. All of that starting at age four. Think about a four-year-old right now and how not great at being a human they are yet. Most four-year-olds can't even make themselves something to eat by themselves, and if they do, they're probably going to make a huge mess, and then as soon as they finish eating, they turn around and ask you what's for dessert. A broom so you can clean that up. Bon appetit, you tiny asshole. Meanwhile, Aaron somehow already knows about all this horrible shit at such a young age. I don't know how fast it escalated, but even still... That's a lot of violence for a person with a single-digit age. Also, if you look on Murderpedia on this one, the first article on there says he's black, but it's the only place I've seen it mentioned, and I don't think he is, and here's why. The only picture I was able to find of this man that exists online is right above this article, and it's of a pretty white-looking bald dude. Kind of a pale fellow, so I'm not sure where that info came from in that article. Aaron also had a long history of mental illness, starting from a very early age. He is known to have suffered from reactive attachment disorder, borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, 
and antisocial personality disorder. All of those diagnoses brought with them a tumultuous childhood of being looked over by doctors and psychiatrists, as well as being transferred in and out of group homes and juvenile detention centers. Juvenile detention centers, especially in the 80s and 90s, weren't highly praised for their rehabilitative effects on juvenile inmates. In fact, one study I found from sometime in 2020 states that when looking at around 46,000 juvenile cases across 32 jurisdictions, felony recidivism rate is around 33% and their misdemeanor recidivism rate is around 11%. 46,000 juvenile cases? That's a bigger number than I expected. Oh, wow. I, I googled juvenile prison population and that's like all the kids in the system in this country. So I guess that study was pretty thorough. Hey, how many kids did you review for this study? Um, I think all of them. Later on in that article, it references an earlier study from 2018, and it was kind of just a poor choice of wording to summarize the study. It was meant to be just a reflection of the total number of juvenile inmates, but it was worded to say around 48,000 kids are placed in the juvenile system every single day. And that got me thinking. What if this happened? What if at the end of the day, you got home exhausted, just so defeated from the day that you drove home in silence, and when you finally get home, you just want to fall into bed and start over again tomorrow. But as soon as your key enters the lock, you hear it. The pitter-patter of teeny tiny kid shoes worn on the wrong feet scurrying down the hallway bringing with them an ear-piercing wall of shrill, high-pitched screams, Daddy's home! Daddy's home! God damn it. I just want to go inside and have a couple of beers and lay down. My head is killing me. Why did I have these friggin' things? Who put me in charge? Oh, hey, Daddy missed you! Because, you know, you gotta do that first. And then what if the next day... Instead of the normal dog pile on dad, it's time for pancakes, rousing out of bed. It's just quiet. And you wake up naturally, peacefully, with no alarm of any kind, for the first time in 10 years. And you realize it's too quiet. Oh shit, where are the kids? If you have kids, and you happen to notice it's too quiet, that's a bad sign. Something is happening, and it's usually not good. Something catches your eye outside, and as you look out the window, you see every house on the block has dads in robes standing on the porch holding white coffee mugs. All of them have the same contorted mixture of confused and relieved painted on their faces, because somehow in the middle of the night, and without warning, the Neighborhood Watch has swooped in and abducted 50,000 kids from all over the country and placed them in various detention centers and towns and places no one has ever heard of. What is the world coming to? Lawns will grow taller, thicker, and greener. Trees on Halloween will forever be bereft of toilet paper. Every day, millions of dads are finally getting around to cleaning out the garage and washing the cars. Never again will there be an unforeseen spike in utilities because somebody left all the goddamn lights on! There's just so many good reasons to be thankful for the reform the juvenile justice system underwent in the 90s! That would be kind of ridiculous if that happened, right? 50,000 kids disappeared every day? No, that didn't happen. If it did, though, 
Based on current juvenile population, that perfect dad world fantasy would only last about four years until we ran out of kids. Then it would probably very quickly devolve into a Mad Max style era of what future scholars will be forced to call the Dad Wars. Alex! Alex, I need your help today, buddy. I'm worn out from that and from answering dumb questions from restaurant people all week. Why don't you do a rundown on what it looks like inside a juvenile detention center for us, huh? Can you do that for me? Oh, what? Me? Uh, what? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay. Nope. No problem. Let me, let me just, um, yeah. All right. Okay. Kind of put me on the spot here, but it's okay. All right. No problem. Let me just, uh, let me just, uh, okay. All right. The outside walls of the Von Air Juvenile Detention Center are a pale blue. Only a few shades off from the backdrop of the dreary, overcast sky. Razor wire lines the top of the fence line facility. Inside, you'll be greeted with long, sterile hallways, white brick walls lined with cameras and large, rounded mirrors, and the same familiar, unaccommodating scent of a government building. Are we all hearing the same thing right now? The beds inside the cell are a poor excuse for the word. Nothing more than a roughly bed-shaped rectangle of white bricks extend out from the wall near the floor, while the second bunk floats a few feet above, existing as only a single row of brick. My friend, that was incredible! Over 200 boys and girls wake up to these conditions every day inside these walls, many of them with complicated, abusive backgrounds and family life, often with a conviction to match, and coming from homes barely an hour away from the facility. The regimented schedule inside has largely been proven ineffective, however, with recidivism rates boasting an astounding 70% from this facility alone. Damn, man, that's the place the guy we're talking about today spent most of his life? Indeed. We know for sure he spent some time at the Ethan Allen Group Home in Delafield, as well as a few other facilities, including Columbia Correctional Institution. That's where Dahmer was, by the way. I'd have to imagine the aesthetics of each place is pretty similar. While you're at it, how's about you walk us through the basics of some of those mental health disorders I mentioned earlier? Okay, but it's cold outside, so you owe me some delicious soup for carrying you today. Fucking deal, bro. Let him have it. Oh, wait, hold on. By the way, we are not experts in anything. We know how to speak well, but that's mostly because we've been in food service for so long, and it's an integral part of the job. We try our damnedest to get it right through research, but we're none of us perfect, so our apologies if we missed the mark on something, and we'll probably do more research after this and figure it out, so just laugh at how dumb we are until then if we get something wrong. Alex, this is your moment, buddy. Make me proud. Okay, so I think the best way to do this is chaotic infomercial style. That means I'm going to list off a brief summary of each disorder followed by some of the most common and prevalent symptoms, and I'm going to do it like it was featured on a way too positive-sounding midday infomercial at a hospital, starting with Borderline Personality Disorder. Borderline Personality Disorder is a mental illness that severely impacts a person's ability to regulate their emotions. This loss of emotional control can increase impulsivity, affect how a person feels about themselves, and negatively impact their relationships with others. Effective treatments are available to manage the symptoms of Borderline Personality Disorder. People with Borderline Personality Disorder may experience intense mood swings and feel uncertainty about how they see themselves. Their feelings for others can change quickly and swing from extreme closeness to extreme dislike. These changing feelings can lead to unstable relationships and emotional pain. People with borderline personality disorder also tend to view things in extremes, such as all good or all bad. 
Their interest in values can change quickly and they may act impulsively or recklessly. Other signs or symptoms may include efforts to avoid real or perceived abandonment, such as plunging headfirst into relationships or ending them just as quickly, a pattern of intense and unstable relationships with family, friends, and loved ones, a distorted and unstable self-image or sense of self, impulsive and often dangerous behaviors such as spending sprees, unsafe sex, substance abuse, reckless driving, and binge eating. Please note, if these behaviors happen mostly during times of elevated mood or energy, they may be symptoms of a mood disorder and not borderline personality disorder. Self-harming behaviors such as cutting, recurring thoughts of suicidal behavior or threats, intense and highly variable moods with episodes lasting from hours to a few days, chronic feelings of emptiness, inappropriate, intense anger or problems controlling anger, feelings of dissociation such as feeling cut off from oneself, observing oneself from outside one's body, or feelings of unreality. Not everyone with borderline personality disorder may experience all of these symptoms. The severity, frequency, and duration of symptoms depend on the person and their illness. Bring it on home, Alex! Reactive attachment, go! You owe me so much soup for this. Children with reactive attachment disorder do not form the important bond that usually develops between a child and their caregivers. Children with reactive attachment disorder seem sad, fearful, or irritable and have a hard time interacting with others. When they are upset, they are not comforted by adults' attempts to make them feel better. Reactive attachment disorder can happen to young children who have been extremely neglected or abused. Reactive attachment disorder is rare. It is only diagnosed in children between the ages of 9 months and 5 years. Signs that a child might have reactive attachment disorder include not smiling, being irritable for no reason, seeming sad and fearful, especially around caregivers, not feeling better when an adult tries to comfort them, calming down more easily when left alone, not showing interest in or looking at other people around them, not reacting when picked up by an adult, not laughing and or playing interactive games like peekaboo. Aaron Lind was ripped away from his mother at only 11 days old and diagnosed with all of these different disorders over the course of his childhood, combined with the less-than-stellar conditions present at many of the juvenile detention centers he was housed in, including the now-closed Ethan Allen in Delafield. Aaron was set on a path that he felt compelled to walk down in order to get further ahead in his own life. In other words, this kid's pretty fucking rad. Thank you if you're still here. That was originally twice as long. So that's kind of what we're going to be dealing with when we get into the crime part of today's story, which is going to be happening uh, right now. On January 15, 1988, Aaron Lind had finally made it out of jail in group homes and landed himself a job in Madison where he worked the night shift at a printing company as a forklift operator. He was briefly living with a roommate, Bart, but as of this day, Bart was a former roommate. After coming home one morning from driving a forklift from 11 to 7, Aaron finds that, uh-oh, quite a bit of his stuff has been burglarized from his house, including his TV and VCR. I bet Madison had a string of stolen VCR and TV cases that were just piling up back then. Aaron, thinking rationally for a brief moment, realizes there's no sign of forced entry, so signs point to Bart, Listen, Bart. denies this as a direct rejection of himself, and instead contacts his landlord and the police. Here's the thing, though. The landlord didn't really care, and the police just asked him, Well, what'd you leave the window unlocked for, you dummy? And then he smacked him on the back of the head, and he's bald, so it made a real tight pop sound like that. And here's another thing about Aaron that's probably important to know. Bart, the roommate, also said Aaron was a weird guy who did weird things, and one of those weird things he liked to do was play around with guns, including shooting at pint glasses around the house. He also liked to race trains across the tracks and run red lights. You know, small town energy. Except in Madison. Police are also remembering, as he's telling them about the robbery, that he was involved in a separate shooting incident a few months prior on Halloween. Where he thought, Hey, you know what's a good idea? I'm gonna just point my gun at people. Which is probably what initially prompted the current robbery in the first place. I mean, 
Bart was probably there. Maybe that was the night he got tired of his asshole roommate pointing guns at partygoers. And maybe that was also the night he started making a new list of movies he wanted to watch and what format to watch them on. So what do you do if you're Aaron? Do you look around at what's left in the house after the robbery and see how bad it is? Perhaps you calmly start making plans to purchase a new VCR and TV? Maybe that's what you'd do. He's already contacted the police, so that's a good step in the right direction, at least. But then he takes it up to the next level, so to speak, and decides, You know what? No! I don't like that Bart fellow, but I'm kind of little and not very intimidating, so I better find a different gun, and begins making phone calls to that effect while trying to locate Bart. He acquires a gun from a different roommate. I believe this one is Tracy Gundlach? Gundlach? It ends with a CH. I don't know if it's a CH or a K. I want to say Gundlach is what it looks like. Hers is the only other name I see that it could be, and she'd say later on about him. He was always real nice. He always helped me with my money problems, which is close to what everyone says in a case like this. So I guess he's not a big spender, too, if he can help out with money problems? Probably not a lot of time to spend money on a night shift, I guess. Either way, he gets a gun from someone, maybe Tracy, and then goes to a relic from the past I'd completely forgotten about, and you probably have too, the Coon Feed! No, he goes and buys a bunch of ammo from Kmart! Yeah, remember Kmart? Yeah. Knock off J.C. Penny. I think there's only like three or four left in the United States. I just barely remember those two. They were already kind of on their way out when I was a kiddo. Pants. Got them. New shoes. Fly. Socks. The goofiest. Hoodie. It's got Toaster. cats on it. He's got a little nub VCR. I named him Scoop. Bullets. Oh, God, don't shoot him. I just got this hoodie. After Kmart, Aaron makes his way down to the Dane County Courthouse in Madison to try and speak with the police about the pending burglary investigation. He arrives at 12.45 on January 15th and goes inside to try to find someone to speak with. He has, as of this moment, left the gun in the car, but he still has it. If you caught it earlier, I said he denied something as a direct rejection to himself. A state psychiatrist, Dr. Ezra Griffith, said during the trial that Aaron's impaired logic causes him to perceive problems as rejections, and events before the shooting were seen as abandonments. Let me put on my not-a-licensed-expert hat real quick. We breezed through some of the symptoms and behaviors that many people with his suite of personality disorders tend to exhibit. I think what the doctor means here is that his ego or psyche, whichever you want to call it, is so contorted and illogical that anything negative is seen as a direct rejection of himself. Everything that goes wrong means he's not good enough in his mind. Literally, if anything goes wrong, a flat tire, can't find his keys, just barely missed his show on TV, a cashier won't take a coupon because it's expired, maybe they sold out of his favorite snacks at the vending machine at work, maybe the forklift wouldn't start one night, Maybe his shoes came untied one day while he was on his way to ask a girl out, and he tripped and fell on his face right in front of her. And maybe all her loud friends were there, laughing at the blood now coming out of his nose, sidewalks are unforgiving, and he looks up at them with blood and tears streaming down his face and says, Why? And maybe Tracy leans in really close with all her money problems and grabs his chin in her hands and tilts his head skyward, looks Aaron in the eyes and says, my father was killed by a forklift, I'll never go out with you, and still maybe. Then all her friends surround this poor man, bleeding out on the concrete, 
tear off all his clothes and lift him up off the ground, place him on their shoulders like he was crowd surfing, and maybe, this is the worst part, maybe they then decide to reclothe him in the outfits they wanted him to wear, stuffed him in a car to go on a shopping spree at Kmart because who wants to wear bloody clothes? And maybe when they all get to Kmart, he busts out of the back window and escapes. Nothing in there fits on me! He takes off running through the parking lot all bloody and screaming at the top of his lungs, It doesn't fit! It doesn't fit! But his shoes are still untied so he trips again and breaks his face on the curb, or maybe none of that happened. He is fragile, though. So the most benign thing could possibly just set him off in a weird way. Maybe it's like if you try to do a funny bit and nobody laughs at it and it just eats at you all day long. But he's at the police station and he goes inside sans gun to try and talk to somebody about the burglary. Cops look up his information, see who is inquiring about it, laugh, and tell, they didn't laugh, <laughs> and tell Aaron that the officer who was investigating the robbery case had been reassigned and was at the moment unavailable for comment. Now it's a direct rejection. Aaron hears this, processes it, accepts it in whatever capacity he's capable, and returns to the car. A few minutes later, he returns to the car, now sporting a much longer jacket. Uh-oh. The jacket is there to conceal the fact that the uh-oh was not misplaced, and he is now carrying a 22 caliber rifle. Let's see. Alex, put on the twangy one for this. Don't fucking tell me what to do. He goes back inside the courthouse with the weapon concealed so no one can see it. He makes his way through the hall and into the police station located inside the courthouse. He pushes open the door and takes aim at his first victim, Eric Erickson. Erickson was an employee with the state justice department and he had chosen that day to go pay a parking ticket and instead, Aaron shoots him in the head. He falls to the floor and Aaron immediately takes another shot at the poor secretary helping Mr. Erickson. Her name is Eleanor Townsend. This poor lady, man, she probably didn't even have enough time to register what was going on or to see what was happening to try to escape. I'm not sure where she was shot, but she dies there in the courthouse. Mr. Erickson, however, would survive his gunshot wound to the head. However, I don't have the status of that parking ticket. I don't know if he got to pay that. And not for nothing, it's a little more incredible that he survived a headshot from a 22. Those things will travel around all over if it gets inside you. It could have ended up in, like, his foot or somewhere weird like that. By now, the police have reacted and are engaged in their response, so Aaron takes off running down the hallway trying to get away. He's not quite finished with his little temper tantrum of a murder spree, and then bursts through the door of the county coroner's office and sees Clyde Bud Chamberlain, and he shoots him too. Now with nowhere to run, Sheriff's Deputy Louis Molnar attempted to peacefully subdue Aaron, but Aaron just kept shooting, I'm gonna kill you, I'm gonna kill you, and I don't care if you kill me, and starts advancing toward Louis. So... Lewis shoots him twice, once in the chest and once in the stomach. Aaron survives though, and he's taken to the Meritor General Hospital nearby and is listed in pretty serious condition. He just got shot twice. He has to undergo surgery, probably to remove the bullets from his chest and stomach, and surgery is completed by 3.30 p.m. Holy shit! That means that whole thing just happened in like two and a half hours from shooting to post-op. The courthouse stuff, that couldn't have lasted more than maybe five minutes, maybe. He gets there around 12.45, has to talk to the cops without the gun first, so by the time he goes back out to the car, changes coats, that's the moment right there, by the way, makes his way back down the hall, that takes, what, maybe five to seven minutes? I don't know how big this courthouse is. But it's a county courthouse in Madison, so there's a shit ton of people walking around in there doing 
whatever it is you do in a courthouse. So there's a lot of people to push past. And then from the first shot at Erickson to him being shot by Molnar couldn't have been more than maybe three or four minutes. Shoot, shoot, hallway, run, first open door he sees, shoot again, nowhere to run now. Oh shit, he's got a gun too. Fuck it. Charge him, pow, pow, plop. Three, four minutes, maybe. It's maybe 12.55 by now. And then he's out of surgery by 3.30 p.m. the same day. That's fucking wild. I guess it's different for gunshot wounds. It has to be, because hospitals don't normally do anything very quickly. After he gets out of surgery, he's sedated, put in the ICU, and given some pain meds. Doesn't say which ones. The prosecutor assigned to Lynn's case had retained a state psychiatrist to evaluate Aaron's mental health at the time of the shooting. Yeah, he just shot up a police station. There might be some crossed wires. Let's go check him out. At 8.34 the same day, January 15, 1988, two detectives from Madison enters Aaron's hospital room. They introduce themselves, he's Mirandized, and they interview him for about 30 minutes until he says he's thirsty and feeling a little bit of pain. Yeah, I would imagine so. At 9.33 p.m., an hour later, Dr. Lee Roberts, the state psychiatrist, enters Aaron's room. He introduces himself and explains that the prosecutor had sent him, tells him he's there to examine his mental state at the time of the shooting, and that this discussion is not confidential, and any information could be reported to other people as it was a direct order from the state for him to even be there, which Aaron made a verbal confirmation that, yes, he did understand. He tells Aaron he doesn't have to speak with him if he doesn't want to. He asks Aaron if he has an attorney. Aaron says no, and Roberts asks him if he wanted an attorney before he spoke to him again. Aaron again says no, so Roberts clarifies with him. You understand you're giving up your right to have an attorney before speaking with me if you do speak with me, which Aaron also understood. This interaction with Roberts is going to be the only chance Aaron would ever have of getting off on an insanity plea. Aaron is eventually released from the hospital and fully into police custody. Over the next few months, trial proceedings would focus mainly on whether or not Aaron was mentally stable at the time of the shooting. Dr. Ezra Griffith would say at the time of the shooting, Lind did suffer from a mental disease. He was in the throes of a psychotic state diagnosed as a brief reactive psychosis. And as a result of that state, Lind lacked substantial capacity to appreciate the wrongfulness of his conduct or to conform to his conduct to the requirements of the law. Griffith also testifies that reactive psychoses are known complications of all of his known personality disorders. Maybe some of that's true to a degree, but he changed his coat to be able to conceal the weapon, which tells me he knows what he's about to do is wrong, but he has to do something first to be able to get to the location to do the thing. Dr. Roberts and several other key witnesses disagree with Dr. Griffith's assessment, and the court finds him guilty on two counts of first-degree murder and one attempted murder. And there's zero information on when this initial trial takes place, I think sometime in the fall of 88, but Judge Robert Pekowski sentenced Aaron to two consecutive life terms for the murders of Eleanor and Bud, which I think in Wisconsin, life just means life until you die. So that twice, plus an additional five years for each murder because he used a gun, and 25 years for attempted murder on Eric Erickson. Two life sentences plus 35 years. He'd have to die, get resurrected, serve out a whole new life sentence entirely behind bars, die, then resurrect again, and serve another 35 years before his third afterlife can get out of prison. I couldn't find anything on Eleanor, 
but there are a couple of web pages dedicated to this story that I think were made sometime pre-Y2K, and there's a nice little backstory on Bud. He'd been the county coroner for 27 years when he was killed, and he'd started that job in 61, and seemed like he was that perpetually happy guy walking through the halls. There was a program that he'd spearheaded so that the deceased eyes could be donated, and he made it work. Through his hard work and dedication, he gave the gift of sight to many who didn't have it. The article says, quote, Bud Chamberlain was more than just a law enforcement officer. He was a fine person, father, husband, and businessman. It's hard to describe our loss. It's like walking the same trail every day for years, being comfortable with it, and then all of a sudden there's a large hole in the path that makes you go a different way. Bud is that hole in our lives, an emptiness that will never be filled again. Now there's an entire government building's worth of people walking around with a bud hole that can never be filled again. And now fast forward another 10 years to 1998 when it's new trial time! The reason Dr. Roberts is so important to this case is because during the initial trial in 88, it was discovered that Dr. Roberts had violated several rules of doctor-patient confidentiality, the most alarming of which was that he'd been sleeping with three of his patients. Don't fuck your patients, Doc. That's not what they're yeah, there for. Doc, I'm vulnerable. It's possible that Dr. Roberts tried to curry favor with the state to move along with the conviction before his indiscretions came to light. And since he was the only psychiatrist to interview Aaron on the day of the murders, he could have used that leverage to secure a conviction a little faster. It had come up during the initial trial, but it took until it made its way through the appeals court until his case was overturned and granted a new trial. Doesn't matter, though. They convict him again the exact same way. Sentencing remains the same, and in 200 years or so, you can come out and maybe, just maybe, it'll be in time for the 335th annual Coon Feed! They only have to roast one now, though. Nuclear fallout made them grow huge. So there you go, folks. That's the story of Aaron Lind. A man who started out as a fire-setting baby, worked his way all the way up to forklift operator, and eventually to around 200 years or so in prison, narrowly dodging raccoon meat and Kmarts all along the way. If you liked that story, or if you just liked the sound of my voice and how I tell stories, let me know. Maybe fill the bud hole in your life with a five-star review or a comment. Go ahead. Fill it up. Just slide that review right up in there somewhere. Just go ahead. Get it up in there really deep. Go ahead. Fill up your bud holes and then spread the word about this show. But I gotta tell you guys something first, real quick. Thank you for listening to my show and what I'm trying to do over here. I really do appreciate that I have any listeners at all. It just blows my mind. If there's a spare moment in the day where you aren't drowning in your own responsibilities, come say hi to me on one of the socials. I'm actually quite calm in real life. And I notice that I have a lot more fun putting an episode together when it's either a serial killer or a cold case that there's been a lot of mystery around, so probably look out for one of those next week. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week, everybody. Stay, Stay kind. kind.